0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: There's
2: the real role of the banking system and the Federal Reserve is to stave off, you know, this uh, fire sale, bargain basement auction of greatly cheapened, commodities that, that we call a depression. The last big one happening in 1929 and uh, a more uh, slow motion version of it happening since uh, the late 60s, uh, early 1970s. In other words, credit creation up to a point uh, when it's supplemented by all these free inputs both from outside of the system and also in terms of grinding down living standards of working people inside the system, can put off for some time the day of reckoning. But as anyone can see reading the papers today, uh, I think we're getting pretty close to that day of reckoning.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Lauren Goldner. Today's show, fictitious capital, real retrogression. Lauren Goldner is an independent writer and activist, He is author of numerous articles on political economy including International Liquidity Crisis and Class Struggle, The Dollar Crisis and Us, 1973 Redux, Continuity and Discontinuity in the Decline of Dollar-Centered World Accumulation, Two Short Texts on Economic Crisis and War, and Fictitious Capital and the Transition Out of Capitalism, among many other essays. He has lived abroad for extended periods in France, Germany, Spain, and Egypt. He has been active in social movements and important strikes in France in 2003. Currently, he lives in Korea and is writing a short book about the Korean working class. Lauren Goldner, welcome. Well,
2: I'm very glad to be on your show.
0: Lauren, you've written that U.S. foreign policy is in crisis. Uh, certainly it has looked for a long time like the United States is conducting permanent war abroad. What, in your opinion, is the main driving force behind these wars?
2: Well, I think that the best way to think about it is in terms of a leap forward or kind of a running forward to avoid a crisis in the rear. And this involves basically a huge crisis of the U.S. economy, Of which we're starting to see very immediate consequences, such as in the subprime mortgage crisis. But this has been going on now for decades. And what it ultimately evolves, what I'd like to talk about today, is this huge credit pyramid which has kept the U.S. economy and the world economy going artificially now since really at least the 1970s.
0: Well, are you talking about an inflationary credit bubble?
2: Yes. Basically, the situation of the current world economy is one in which there is a tremendous amount of what I call fictitious capital. That's a term borrowed from Karl Marx, used by many other people, but not generally part of mainstream discussion of the economy. And by fictitious capital, I mean capital investments, uh, demands for return in either the form of profit or interest or rent, that really don't correspond to any kind of production in the what we could call the real economy. That's a somewhat loaded term we can unpack. And over time, since the late 1950s, really, but really accelerating since the early 1970s, the U.S. economy, through its financial system, has generated... A historically unprecedented amount of this fictitious capital. It circulates just like normal capital circulates. And I want to quickly point out that there's no real boundary between this fictitious capital and real capital, but they they coexist side by side. And to the typical Mainstream point of view, economists, policymakers, they're indistinguishable, but they require profit. And if that profit doesn't come from normal capitalist production, it has to come from what I call loot. The loot being something that is essentially a free input to the system. Now, what is a free input to the system? Uh, one very common form is the importation of labor from other sectors of the world economy, and most notably in Europe and in North America, that's immigrant labor recruited from rural economies in Latin America, or in the case of Europe, the Middle East, or Africa. Uh, Another free input is the simple looting of nature, Uh, destruction of nature, say, for example, in the form of strip mining that produces a profit for a local capitalist, but at the same time produces huge social costs that are not paid for by that capitalist, but are paid for by society as a whole, or not paid for at all. Uh, So that is the fundamental process that I see going on today, that as this credit pyramid has become larger and larger, uh, more and more of that looting has become necessary. I want to add that in addition to those free inputs, if you want to use a kind of technocratic term, uh, there is also a form of looting Internal to the system, and that is driving the wages of ordinary working people down below the level at which they can reproduce themselves that is, have families, raise another generation of workers or destroying uh, existing plant and infrastructure. First of all, by overuse, and then secondly, by non replacement again the u s economy is a excellent example of that where it 's been a while since i 've seen the exact figures, but it 's estimated that something like three to four trillion dollars of infrastructure replacement would be necessary from you know the Chicago sewer system that burst uh, several years ago and created huge amounts of damage from an initial glitch that would have cost about $1,200 to repair. And anybody who's familiar with American cities can think of their own examples of that. So there's an external kind of pull into the system of labor and materials that aren't paid for, At at the same time there's a grinding down in the system of what we would call normal reproduction. Of course, by normal, I merely mean normal in capitalist terms, not necessarily normal in human terms.
0: So would you say then that the system is cannibalizing itself, that it's not going to be able to uh, infinitely reproduce itself?
2: That's exactly what I'm saying. Uh, I think if we look at the U.S. economy over the last Uh, 40 or 50 years, we we can see this very clearly. Just to take one example, uh, in the New York public school system, a city where I've lived uh, for five or 10 years, uh, there used to be an excellent system of elementary schools and high schools through which working class children would go to college and wind up in what Americans call the middle class. Now, again, I'm using these terms guardedly just to talk about a certain kind of social mobility. And over the last uh, 30 or 40 years, that whole system has been interrupted and basically turned into one in which a huge number of kids are basically in dead-end situations and drop out of school Uh, knowing full well that they have no future in the broader society. Uh, In France, where in 2005 there were riots in the suburbs of Paris of similar kids, in this case mainly immigrants, who were similarly cut off, um, they used the metaphor of the breaking of the social escalator. So that's simply one example of what I would call non-reproduction in society. That is, in a certain period of its history, uh, myth of America, a working-class child, uh, had a a certain opportunity to rise socially. And I would say that, by and large, uh, this has been turned into a very elite system.
0: Now... You've written that the worldwide boom is a result of a huge credit creation by the United States. How does the United States create credit?
2: Okay. Basically, following World War II, uh, the United States replaced Great Britain as the world creditor. That, in fact, had been going on since World War I, but just kind of episodically and sporadically and the important result of world war 2 was to make the dollar into what's called an international reserve currency and right at the end of world war 2 the dollar had this reputation of being as good as gold now what it meant in practice was that central banks around the world uh did not just accumulate gold out of international trade they accumulated dollars and held them just in the same way they held gold. Uh, You can think of it as kind of a big poker game in which uh, wins and losses are distributed around in the form of chits, and those chits today are literally dollars. And what was kind of novel about this system was that it gave the U.S. an ability to not only uh, perform credit operations in its own domestic economy, but to essentially uh, inflate or deflate the world economy. Now, starting in the late 1950s, this system became problematic. For a simple reason, that the U.S. began to import more goods from abroad than it was exporting, and its competitive position, which after World War I was huge uh, that is, hugely advantageous uh, began to deteriorate under competition from countries like Germany and a few years later from Japan, so that America's trade deficits began to produce dollars held in other central banks. And at the same time, inflation began to take off in the United States. So for the first time, the world was experiencing in a small way what it is now experiencing in a gigantic way. Namely, they're holding these pieces of green paper, these chits, of the system at the same time that their value is eroding through domestic inflation in the United States. We can see this very clearly right now where just a few days ago the head of the Federal Reserve system Benjamin Bernanke uh <clears throat> testified before Congress that the Fed as the Federal Reserve system is called uh, still is concerned about an inflationary bias in the u s economy and will not be reducing interest rates anytime soon, uh, this is exactly what these international holders of dollars are concerned about, and above all, the Asian central banks, the big central banks of China, Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan, uh, who hold altogether something on the order of two trillion dollars are saying to themselves, well, uh, we have these dollars, we uh, mainly invest them in U.S. assets and, above all, U.S. government assets like treasury bills, and at the same time we see inflation in the U.S. uh, creeping up every quarter, Uh, how much longer are we going to hang on to these green pieces of paper as their value deteriorates? One can think of this uh, international position of uh, the dollar today, something like a hot potato or a, uh, a bag of hot air, uh, something that nobody wants to really hold on to for too long. The, the, the dilemma in which foreign uh, countries, foreign central banks, China, first of all, are caught is, on one hand, because of their very positive trade balance with the U.S., which has been very seriously deindustrialized over decades, going back probably again to the late 1950s, they have deteriorating assets, and at the same time, because so much of their trade goes to the United States, fills up the shelves at Walmart, uh, they have an interest in a certain stability of the dollar so it's something like a kind of a mafia con game, where if I owe you $1,000, I'm in trouble, but if I owe you a $1 million, you're in trouble. You have an interest in my ongoing solvency. So the, w- the way in which this problem gets papered over is simply that these foreign creditors of the United States continue to recycle those dollars into American assets, American capital markets, and, as I said a moment ago, above all, into American uh, government paper, which allows the whole game to continue with that inflow of foreign funds. The U.S. is currently uh, borrowing 2 to $3 billion a day to maintain its uh, indebted situation in the world to keep the whole credit system moving, and uh, with this inflow of foreign funds, the federal Reserve system and the u s treasury just continue to reflate the economy, create new forms of credit in the u s Now, how does this connect up with the social deterioration that I was talking about uh, because this Money goes out into the economy and requires uh, profit in different forms, that profit has to come from somewhere. Uh, and what it means essentially is that things that appear to capitalists, individual capitalists, but above all the capitalist class as a whole, uh, that are considered superfluous, say, like education or social services they have to be cut and anybody who's been conscious for the last 3 or 4 decades knows that they've been cut very badly so essentially to support the growing credit pyramid uh the system has to take real wealth from somewhere and basically shift it from things that benefit working people uh into things that can be profit for the capitalist class uh, as a result as everyone knows, since the late 1960s, we've seen a huge reversal of income equality in the U.S. and everywhere else in the advanced capitalist world, not to mention many parts of the third world. I don't want to present a rose-tinted view of the pre-1970 U.S. economy that was certainly Uh, serious income inequality at that time, but it's very interesting that figures show just about 1968, 1970, the wealthiest fifth of the population and the poorest fifth of the population started to move farther and farther apart to the point that today they're farther apart than they were prior to the 1929 crash, which is the event that sort of ended the last period of crazed capitalist speculation. So, so there's a real interaction between the maintenance of this circulating fictitious capital and debt and the real material life of society.
0: I'm speaking with independent writer and activist Lauren Goldner. Today's show, Fictitious Capital, Real Retrogression. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So is what you're describing, uh, the deterioration of the economy, society, for most of the people, is this a necessary and a direct result of the system of capitalism?
2: I would say absolutely. Now, to get into the reasons why that's the case, I have to go down, uh, so to speak, another level, or up another level of abstraction. It's very easy, and there are many populist theories of the current situation in the U.S. that can focus on finance, debt pyramids. You just have to look on the Internet and you can find all kinds of people in places like Kansas and Idaho talking about bankers ruling the world and uh, theories that have been around as long as capitalism has been around. Uh, But in reality, capitalism is a system in which uh, the financial dimension is quite auxiliary to material production and reproduction what What is truly uh, skewed and uh, unreal about the contemporary world is that more and more it 's the maintenance of this credit pyramid that begins to dominate material production and reproduction. So let me explain at at its real Bottom level, capitalism is a system in which socially necessary labor time is the sort of uh, fundamental uh, common denominator for economic activity between the working class or individual groups of workers on one hand and uh, capitalist investment on the other. That is, and this, of course, is the theory of Karl Marx, which was a certain important transformation of what is known as classical political economy, developed by figures like Adam Smith and Ricardo, that capitalism, through its activity uh, and increasing of productivity, and even in the last three or four decades, there's been an important increase of productivity in some areas, uh, tends to undermine the actual price paper values of uh, different parts of the economy things get things in theory get cheaper and cheaper machines get cheaper uh, the cost of doing everything gets cheaper we just have to think about the computer connected uh, revolution so to speak of the last 2 or 3 decades to see a case where the flow of information has Expanded exponentially, and at the same time, the cost of it has gone down radically. Uh, To see one example of capitalism uh, cheapening commodities, the the problem is that because the bedrock of the system is uh, this relationship between the cost of the social time involved in reproducing. Labor power—that is, people capable of working and the tools they work with—it tends to make things so cheap that the whole system is is thrown into crisis. And what what we have been seeing uh, since the 1960s and 70s is a classic case of that. In the late 1960s, I would argue uh, the system got to a point which it had reached once or twice before, in which this general socially necessary labor time had been reduced by uh, gains in productivity to a point that it could be superseded. Uh, In other words, that a new system that no longer depended on socially necessary labor time could replace it. And the most obvious uh, expression of that at that time was a worldwide revolt of the working class against older forms of labor, and most memorably the assembly line. Some people refer to this as the Fordist phase of capitalism, the phase that came in in the 1930s and 1940s with huge mass production factories, symbolized above all by the auto industry, and throughout North America and Western Europe, and in some countries of the underdeveloped world third world whatever you want to call it there was a from the mid 1960s to 1973 a huge working class revolt of wildcat strikes and organized strikes and in a few cases like Spain and Portugal uh, near revolutions in which that form of labor was radically called into question and I would say, and again, we can unpack this further, uh, almost everything that has happened in world capitalism since that time has been a reaction, a counter-move. Uh, I'm not going to say counter-revolution, because there was no, ultimately no revolution against the revolt of that period.
0: Exactly. Now, are you saying then that things get cheaper because of increased productivity. And this increased productivity is an integral part of uh, a capitalist system, and so then the rate of profit falls. Is, is yes. that how it goes?
2: Yes. Uh, capitalism is an anarchic system. Capitalism is a system in which uh, hundreds, thousands of individual capitals pursue what they believe to be in their own immediate interest so that an individual capitalist sees an opportunity to increase his or her profit level by introducing some new technology, and does so, and lo and behold, it works. The problem for the system is that, of course, that example is followed by other capitalists, and the gains in productivity... Uh, tend to work their way through the whole system. We see uh, since the 1970s uh transport revolution, both in terms of air transport and shipping, as well as communications uh, innovations that have made it possible to outsource and downsize older forms of production in a way that I think virtually nobody in the 1960s imagined possible. So that Uh, For example, I just read a couple days ago that even uh, distribution centers of goods in the U.S., uh, which were previously thought of as Fairly stable forms of employment. Uh, now, that distribution work can essentially be done in countries like China and uh, pinpointed in uh, its delivery to the place where it's going to be sold. So, uh, something that would have been inconceivable prior to uh, this kind of communications revolution and transport. So, and here I'm not even really talking about technology in production itself, I'm simply talking about. Auxiliary technology of transportation and communication, uh, when we start to look at computer controlled production and robotics in the production, say, of automobiles or steel, the ability of the system to cheapen goods becomes even greater.
0: I was going to ask you then, with this natural increase in productivity, which is uh, a part of the system that then makes profits fall off, then are you saying that the problem here or one of the problems inherent in the system is that if there's not enough profit uh, generated, then I guess that is why they're outsourcing to other countries. You mentioned the late 60s and early 70s, the wildcat strikes, the uh, problems there, and then countermeasures taken by governments. When exactly was it that uh, jobs started being sent overseas?
2: Okay. Actually, that does go back to the late 1950s. As the world recovered from World War II, uh, there was a period of 10 or 15 years of quite stringent capital controls, meaning that national economies tended to be very much uh, closed unto themselves, where the governments retained great power to regulate International trade and capital flows. Um, of course, the U.S. Uh, was in a different situation. The U.S. was funding the recovery of Western Europe and Japan. And it was starting in the late 1950s that U.S. Uh, production began to be uh, outsourced to other countries, starting to Canada, where just over the border but still with significantly lower wages, attracted uh, U.S. industrial investment. And uh, that process then continued in Western Europe in the early to mid-1960s, uh, but uh, let me get back to another aspect of your question. We have to realize that you know when we talk about capitalist development and we talk about things like investment, productivity, all the kinds of things that mainstream economics talk about, we're talking about people in and social relations in. Production and reproduction. And one of the most significant and understudied, under discussed aspects of the 1950s that was connected to a desire by U.S. capitalists to invest abroad was a growing shop floor working class rebellion, which above all expressed itself in the wildcat strikes in industries such as auto in the midwest in nineteen fifty five uh, walter ruther who was then the head of the united auto workers uh, came back from negotiations with the big three auto companies with a contract with unprecedented wage increases benefits etc and so forth thinking that this would be a great triumph and the reaction of the auto workers themselves was a wildcat strike throughout the auto industry. And the message of the strike was basically, you can give us all the money you want, all the benefits you want, but what we do eight hours a day or ten hours a day is something totally out of our control. And we're going to die of boredom on the assembly line, Uh, with these uh, higher and higher benefits. And this, of course, somewhat astounded Ruther and the leadership of the UAW, but it showed that something fundamental in the production process was uh, simply being neglected because, as I said, it's not simply a question of these economic factors, but of the ability of working people to have real control over what they do every day so this process which began with investments in canada in the late fifties continued into europe uh, starting in the sixties then went on to the countries uh, in asia such as taiwan and south korea which became known uh... later as the tigers was part of this general process a a general on one hand search for higher profits and on the other hand uh... a real concern by capitalists uh... about the growing rebellion of labor in in the capitalist heartland in the u.s. initially and then starting again in the mid sixties in europe itself Um, The important thing to understand about this whole question of productivity, as I said, is the anarchic quality of the system. Individual capitalists do well for themselves by introducing say new technology boosting productivity and raising their profits the the problem is that because the system is coordinated ultimately by the market a blind force uh, what is the advantage for an individual capitalist actually creates tremendous problems for the system as a whole. You can think of it as micro-rationality leading to macro-absurdity. And what that means is that as this productivity uh, ripples through the whole system and cheapens uh, the cost of all goods, it leaves the capitalists confronting two problems. One is that A machine, for example, that they paid for three years ago, say, a million dollars, expecting it to last for 10 years uh, by these productivity increases has been depreciated far more rapidly so that its book value, the value that they have to repay, uh, usually to a bank, is already in excess of what uh, it's actually worth today. And in some sense, we could describe that as a fundamental expression of the contradiction of the system, that that the cost today of reproducing something because of these gains in productivity uh, becomes far lower than uh, what the capitalists, individually and collectively are showing on their books so that and we want to get to the heart of this question of credit creation the real role of the banking system and the federal reserve is to stave off you know this uh, fire sale bargain basement auction of greatly cheapened commodities that that we, we call a depression the last big one happening in 1929, and uh, a more uh, slow-motion version of it happening since uh, the late 60s, uh, early 1970s. In other words, credit creation up to a point, uh, when it's supplemented by all these free inputs that I mentioned, both from outside of the system and also in terms of grinding down living standards of working people inside the system, can put off for some time the day of reckoning. But as anyone can see reading the papers today, uh, I think we're getting pretty close to that day of reckoning.
0: I'm speaking with independent writer and activist Lauren Goldner. Today's show, fictitious capital, real retrogression. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter the system may work for an individual capitalist, but as a whole, it's completely irrational. Right. Now, from
2: the vantage point of the uh, theory of Karl Marx, which anyone listening to this show can see I'm very strongly influenced by, uh, there's an additional problem, which is uh, what Marxists tend to call the falling rate of profit. And that is very closely related to the phenomenon I was just talking about. Uh, That is, on one level... We, we see this clash between the historical cost of, of uh, say, a machine versus its uh, current cost of reproduction. That's one problem. And that problem blurs over into this more fundamental problem, which is that over time, the total amount of uh, labor time required to materially reproduce the whole system gets lower and lower. So that at a certain point, and I think, again, we got there uh, in the 1960s, and I think it could be argued that the system even got there sometime around World War I, that in terms of the actual uh, capitalist system as a whole, the ability of the system to regenerate and to have a new period of expansion based on socially necessary labor time, Uh, fritters away. Marx talked about this both in Capital and in his uh, other book, The Grundrisse, as capital becoming an obstacle to itself, that socially necessary labor time, the time society really requires to provide uh, the basis of material reproduction uh, people and the tools they work with and the cities they live in or wherever they live, uh, becomes such a small part of the totally available labor time that that kind of standard, the operation of the market, the operation of what Marx has called the law of value, becomes uh, obsolete. And what we see... When the system doesn't transcend itself, isn't transcended in a in a positive way into another kind of society that would be beyond these kinds of considerations. There's huge retrogression. That is, the system basically, and this is again what we're seeing now and what we've seen for decades. The system has to basically turn back on itself and force things back to a situation in which, from a capitalist point of view, a rate of profit becomes possible. And this is, this is, I think, if what I'm saying is true, I think it's the key to many, if not all, of the important social phenomena that we've seen over the last 30 or 40 years.
0: Yes, I see what you mean. The increased productivity Should be able to free people, but in order to keep within this system, uh, the economy has to be broken down and destroyed and rebuilt in order to keep the same. In order to not transcend this system,
2: exactly. Uh, And for those listeners who remember the late 1960s and early 1970s, you may recall uh, a spate of books and articles in the media. Uh, I remember a cover of Newsweek or Time or whichever magazine of that kind it was uh, saying with a uh, cover story, Can America Survive the Four-Day Week? It was very common, uh, including in new left circles at that time, to talk about the leisure society and the problems of the leisure society. And uh, At a certain point, at its lowest, uh, the average work week in the U.S. dropped to about 39 hours per week. Now, all of this sounds almost like fantasy land today, where the average work week has increased, at least, you know, by official statistics, of which I'm highly dubious, to you know, forty-six, forty-seven hours a week, and others about a twenty percent increase. And much more important, and this probably is the most important single fact, so to speak, of social reproduction I can point to in, in the U.S. Uh, is the way in which uh, working class family, circa 1960, could. Uh, survive and reproduce itself, so to speak, that is, educate the new generation and engage in the kinds of leisure that were possible at that time uh, on one paycheck. And as we know, the one paycheck family uh, has more or less gone the way of the dinosaur. Now, let me quickly say that I'm quite aware that the overwhelming majority of those single paychecks were earned by men and mainly by white men. So there was a whole other element of distortion in there. But the fact remains that today when two and sometimes three paychecks, uh, not to mention uh, working poor, people working two and three jobs, uh, barely hanging on. I mean, there's the famous case, the well-known case of working poor who are homeless and holding down one or two jobs at minimum wage. Uh, this is another indicator of exactly this kind of retrogression I was talking about where the system seemed to be on the threshold of simply going beyond socially necessary labor time in order to create a humane society with goals totally different from capital accumulation instead you get a tremendous retrogression of social conditions of which we can we can talk about symptoms till the end of this show if you want.
0: maybe you could talk a little bit about how the system is being kept afloat presently, and people of course have been expecting for decades for the system to go under, but it keeps going. Now we've got this big credit bubble. Uh, We've got this uh, U.S. consumer of last resort. We have these subprime mortgages. Now that is unfolding. How do you see things right now and in the near future?
2: Okay, well, I'm one of those people who's been expecting the whole thing to tank uh, since probably the early 1970s. And basically, you'll often see uh, mainstream coverage uh, of uh, economic matters in the newspapers and other media, a uh, reference to the U.S. consumer-driven world economy. And there is a lot of truth to that, that uh, what has been going on periodically and, and certainly since the 1970s and the Ronald Reagan era, the 1980s, has been credit creation in the U.S., which has been subsidized by the system I mentioned earlier of of foreign countries lending money to the U.S. government to expand credit, give consumer credit to large parts of the U.S. population. Over decades, there's just been an almost constant year-in, year-out increase in the indebtedness of individuals and families. Now, This is subsidized Ultimately, by these foreign creditors and by the increase of American government debt. It's, it's important uh, to recall that at the time Ronald Reagan uh, came to power in uh, 1980, the total debt accumulated by the U.S. state going back to its origins uh, was 1 trillion dollars and uh, 20 years later in 2000 it was 4 trillion dollars so just right there we can see an enormous increase in federal indebtedness and that increase from 1 to 4 trillion was made possible by asian banks european banks middle eastern oil producers Uh, funneling the dollars they receive for selling goods to the United States back into American capital markets and to the U.S. government debt. That's just another aspect of what we could call the financialization of the system. This is something, again, that I think is probably widely understood by uh, the listeners, that the role of the financial system this has been part of what has been touted since the nineteen sixties as the shift to a service economy in the next few years as people who work in the subprime mortgage field are going to learn this service economy has mainly been a term to refer to people who are employed in the circulation of this fictitious capital all kinds of financial advisors and other creators of what are called new financial products, which uh, become more and more complex to the point that uh, today on Wall Street, uh, the typical economic analyst working for Goldman Sachs has a, a PhD not in economics or econometrics, but in astrophysics or mathematics because the ultimate architecture, as they call it, of the system has become so complicated that even the CEOs don't understand it. But what it does come down to when you step back and look at it is a huge increase of financial assets relative to uh, what we can guardedly call real assets, that is the things that people actually consume and the things that uh, are needed to to produce those things. Um, So I, I would say that that process uh, is the main thing that it has kept the, the system going all this time that ag- again and it 's important always to keep this in mind combined with what I call the free inputs into the system that is if the u s did not have the ability to tap huge amounts of wealth from abroad both in the form of immigrant labor let me let me just dwell on that for a moment. Uh, Immigrant labor has two advantages for American capitalists. One is, of course, it tends to push down uh, general wage levels for all workers in the economy. The second one, and probably more important, is that from the Point of view of American capitalists, it comes free to the system. They do not have to pay for the childcare and education of such labor power. Those are paid for by the rural societies from which uh, immigrant workers are recruited. And so, across the board, uh, in terms of the total wage expenses that the capitalists have to lay out, it's a huge savings. And then, again, as I said, the the simple looting of natural resources, non-replacement of resources, non-innovation of technologies that can overcome the depletion of resources such as petroleum. Uh, All of these uh, are ways in which the system, in addition to this credit run-up, gets further steam to uh, stagger on a few
0: more years. I'm speaking with independent writer and activist Lauren Goldner. Today's show, fictitious capital, real retrogression. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, now, Lauren, we could talk about a foreign war and how that and why that's an integral part of keeping this system going. Yeah,
2: I, I, no, I think that's a very important point, and, and anyone listening to most of what I've said up to now might get the impression that I had a purely economic or economist view of reality. My actual view, uh, is that this is all very tied up with politics and with foreign policy and war. The subtitle of Marx's book, Capital, is The Critique of Political Economy, and I insist on that as opposed to any kind of economics as the kinds of realities that I'm I'm discussing. I do not believe, and the history of the 20th century, I think, bears me out on this, that we will see a purely economic crisis. What we're seeing, as I started to say at the beginning of the show, was that there's an element of flight forward by U.S. foreign policy that I see as very integrally tied to these economic problems we've been discussing. And let me just elaborate on that. Even influential, uh, well-known figures like Henry Kissinger and Brzezinski for 20 or 30 years have been talking in their books pretty openly about uh, America as a declining imperial power. The essence of U.S. foreign policy, and let me just at this point plug uh, one very interesting book written by a Frenchman named Emmanuel Todd, came out circa 2000 in France and then was translated into English in 2003 under the title After Empire, which he lays out you know something quite similar to what i 'm saying, namely that the true aim of u s foreign policy in many parts of the world, which in some ways might seem inexplicable, actually is uh, the creation of chaos that is when a uh, hegemon you know the lone superpower as the u s has been called since one thousand nine hundred and ninety one emerges uh... there tends to be a world realignment of other countries into one coalition against it uh... this happened famously in the seventeenth century during the period of louis the fourteenth in france where france was such a dominant military power on the european continent that it wound up creating a huge anti-french alliance of virtually every other country And U.S. foreign policy today I see as aimed at preventing exactly the same thing. We see Brzezinski, for example, wrote, a, in my opinion, very enlightening book Uh, in the late 90s. The title was either The Great Chess Game or The Great Chess Board, something like that, in which he uh, outlined uh, five potential rival centers to the U.S. Uh, and saying very openly that uh people uh we've got to recognize that the US is a declining power and uh, what uh what should we do about this well the best thing we can do is uh, divide our potential enemies and uh, try to negotiate the best possible terms of decline. Well, this is a pretty remarkable statement from somebody who was uh, Jimmy Carter's national security advisor in uh, the late 70s. And he said, okay, let's, let's, look, uh, let's look at the map out there. We've got Europe. We've got Russia. We have China or East Asia as a whole. China, Korea, Japan, uh, uh, India, and Indonesia, all of them major or a rising economic players in the world economy. And, and Brzezinski specifically points in his book uh, at uh, East Asia as the true main potential rival of, of the U.S. And what we have to do is find ways to keep them uh, off balance uh, relative to each other. And uh, at the time, it's kind of ironic, uh, he all but said uh, uh, a useful tool in this is uh, Islamic fundamentalism. So uh, maybe we should support the Chechens a little bit in uh, Russia as we supported the Afghans uh, against the Soviet invasion in the 1980s. Uh, Maybe we should uh, stir things up in Kashmir uh, to keep India and Pakistan off balance. And let's uh, maybe support the Aceh Liberation Forces in Indonesia and uh, the Uyghurs in Western China. Now, let me quickly point out that Brzezinski was not advocating Islamic revolutions for these parts of the world. He was simply saying that these could be useful tools for tweaking these uh, potential rivals and keeping them busy uh, with other things besides creating a, a U.S. anti-U.S. world coalition we can look at U.S. foreign policy very much as an attempt to keep the world from bolting from this uh, dollar-denominated financial system, from creating an independent poll that could rival the United States, and that uh, U.S. foreign policy uh, for the foreseeable future can be read in those terms. Uh, And I think whether the... Democrats uh, or the Republicans win the 2008 elections, it will change mainly the rhetoric with which uh, those goals are pursued. So I think you know what I would like people to come away with above all in this talk is a recognition that what looks like relatively normal, business-as-usual capitalism today is such a distortion of the human potential of the society as a whole, and not just America, but on a world scale, that what is really required is a sort of programmatic imagination that could foresee the end of huge parts of what is currently called work and the transformation of what is left socially, truly socially necessary work into something else that would just create a kind of society based on human needs that would be just almost unrecognizable compared to contemporary reality.
0: You have mentioned the need for a, a social slash economic revolution that would benefit most people in uh, this country, perhaps in the world, of course, the government or the owners must realize this as well. Do you see the domestic situation here in the United States as dangerous for political dissidents, for instance?
2: Well, I think there's no question about that. I mean, what we've seen since 9-11 is just a an appetizer, a dress rehearsal for the kind of Uh, repression uh, that could be brought to bear on any broader movement that the capitalists would sense as uh, threatening their power. I think if we think back to the late 60s and early 70s, we can see a a much wider kind of repression. uh, The apparatus of uh, police red squads and national intelligence agencies uh, involving themselves uh, infiltrating and trying to influence oppositional politics the uh, unbelievable or actually quite believable changes in uh, the concept of constitutionality that have happened, particularly under the Bush administration, all of this uh, sets the stage for effectively a a kind of uh, electronically monitored police state that would make uh, Nazi Germany or Stalinist Russia look like uh, a libertarian societies. I think the apparatus that's already in place could be tweaked very quickly into uh, something that would be much more intrusive into uh, the lives not just of marginal people or people who are selected out as victims to sort of reinforce social solidarity, but something much more on the scale of the 1919, 1920 Palmer raids, Red Scare, or the post. World War II McCarthyite period. So there's no question that as a movement of ordinary working people that d- would begin to threaten the power of the capitalist class came into existence, that we would see uh, a huge expansion of this kind of repression. But. I think compared to what we've seen so far, uh, what we would see in the event of the emergence of a of a real movement challenging the system at its foundations is, you know, or just it would be in another dimension.
0: Lauren Goldner, thank you very much.
2: Well, uh, it's been a pleasure.
1: There's something happening, yeah.
0: I've been speaking with independent writer and activist Lauren Goldner. Today's show has been Fictitious Capital, Real Retrogression. Lauren Goldner is author of numerous articles on political economy, including International Liquidity Crisis and Class Struggle, The Dollar Crisis and Us, 1973 Redux, Continuity and Discontinuity in the Decline of Dollar-Centered World Accumulation, two short texts on economic crisis and war, and Fictitious Capital and the Transition Out of Capitalism, among many other essays. His articles have appeared in Against the Current, New Politics, Critique, and Collective Action Notes. He has lived abroad for extended periods in France, Germany, Spain, and Egypt. He has been active in social movements and in important strikes in France in 2003. Currently, he lives in Korea, and is writing a short book about the Korean working class. Lauren Goldner's articles are posted at his website, Break Their Haughty Power. For a link to his website, go to gunsandbutter.net. Today's show was co-produced by Todd Fletcher. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. Our engineer is Bonnie Bone. To leave comments or order copies of the show, email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net. That's Faulkner at GunsAndButter.net. Or visit our website at www.GunsAndButter.net.
1: Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G, And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? key to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall, cause love conquers all, you understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls, wake up and take control of your own cypher, and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper, trying to steal your life, you know what I'm saying? Look what decides yourself for peace. You dig me? You got me?